to begin our time together this evening, I want us to think together in our own lives about things that we have allegiances to. And we're going to really get down to it this evening. Things that you feel strongly about. Maybe it's a political view, a certain political party. Maybe it's a sport or a sports team or a certain athlete. Maybe it's a TV show or a TV series or a movie of some sort or a movie character. Maybe it's a famous person, a celebrity. Considering each of these individually, I want you to ask yourself, what would your breaking point be for each of these things that you have feelings for or that you care for? You could say that you have allegiances to. For example, the Cat-Grizz rivalry is a wonderful rivalry. It produces the most exciting competition in the entire state of Montana, but sometimes the rivalry goes too far. People genuinely show hatred toward one another, malice toward one another, and even violence. And at least for me, that's the breaking point. That's for my own heart when I break my allegiance to the cats when it would ask me to hurt someone else physically. In fact, don't tell many people this, but I surprised myself even. This last fall, I did a wedding between a grizzly football player and a grizzly basketball player. Couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it, but I did it anyways. And so I was willing to break with my allegiances there for a moment. Although I did have to slip something into the wedding message, even still about the Bobcats. So, <clears throat> Let's go into another realm. Some people are far too attached to their political views, are they not? And when politics don't go their ways, threats and hates and protests and violence begin to embitter them. Again, allegiances gone too far. How about family members, though? To what extent are you willing to defend your family member? To what extent will you take the same criticism that they're taking, especially when they're wrong? What if your family member's wrong? What if your family member is going against God? At what point are you willing to break allegiances with your family? Now, however you would personally answer each of these questions is up to you, but you see the point. Even our closest allegiances have a breaking point. There's a place where that allegiance will be broken. And so, what I want to probe with you tonight in all of our hearts, and I'm including myself in this, is what about with Jesus? What is your breaking point with Jesus? What is the boundary of your allegiance to him? Or let's ask it another way. How far are you willing to go for Jesus? What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to forsake for his name? And while we could answer this hypothetically all day long, another important consideration that has to be brought into this conversation is this. What does Jesus require of those who want to follow him? I don't care what we think. What we need to know is what does Jesus require? What are his terms of following him? And so our text today not only answers this, guys, but it's going to challenge your faith wherever you're at. Believers, gear up. I believe that there are new levels of faith in Christ, new levels of allegiance to be probed in your own hearts tonight. And unbelievers, those who don't know Christ yet as Lord and Savior, tonight we're going to look at Jesus' own words regarding the cost of following him. And then in the end, in the midst of this intense sacrifice that he asked for, I'm going to leave you tonight with six reasons why you must make this decision to follow Christ. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 9. And we'll read verses 57 to 62 before we go back through them in detail. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. 
As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to them, said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Well, maybe you've already picked up on the fact that this passage is going to have something for us all to chew on and wrestle with this evening. This saying will not disappoint the expectation for it to be hard, as a hard saying of Jesus. In fact, in my opinion, it's going to take it to a new level. Here in these verses, Jesus interacts with three of his disciples, three of his disciples regarding the cost of following him. And before we dig into this in detail, I want to just make a few observations of the larger context here. Luke chapter 9 could almost be called the Revelation chapter. Because Jesus is revealing himself in so many different ways. If you look at the beginning, he starts by feeding 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish, revealing his power. And then using this as a launching point, he shares perhaps the best discourse on the gospel in all of scripture. And I want to read that for you. Luke chapter 9, the true cost of discipleship, starting in 24, he says, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever, wishes, or for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. And so Jesus reveals here truth about eternal life. Right? He feeds the 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish, and then he reveals what it means to have eternal life. You must give oneself up to follow him. Following this, Jesus shows his glory in the transfiguration to Peter, James, and John. And literally, if you're not familiar with the transfiguration, he was lifted up, he, his face shone bright like white. His, the glory of the Father was being expressed through the Son. The glory of God was expressed through the Son in a human body for a moment, and Peter, James, and John were there to see it. And ironically, the next section that Luke places right after this, you want to know what it was? The disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. The exact wrong application coming off of that little encounter. Okay, they're arguing about who's the greatest. Within this dialogue, you may be familiar with it, this is where James and John say, Lord, within the dialogue of them arguing who's the greatest, they say, Lord, there's some, Jew some Jews in Jerusalem who aren't uh, conforming with what we want. Can we call down fire on them? And needless to say, the disciples were at times clueless to what was going on. Jesus patiently says in verse 56, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And so, it's coming off of this that he then turns back to focus on the disciples' heart. You can see now why I say this chapter is kind of a revelation chapter. Jesus is revealing a lot about himself. He's revealing a lot of truth by way of doing things and by way of teaching things. Clearly, the disciples were still confused about some things. They wanted the position of greatness for themselves. They wanted to call down fire on other people because they didn't conform to their standard right away. And so Jesus goes back to the very core of the Christian faith, the foundation of it all, which is our allegiance to him. 
So what we're going to see is that Jesus challenges the disciples, and by extension, any other disciples of Jesus, including us, in their allegiance to him by comparing and contrasting this allegiance to him with three competitions for their hearts, three potential idols for their hearts. We're going to see how Jesus challenges allegiance toward him to be greater than three, I would even argue, basic areas of life fundamental, potentially even needs in life. And friends, listen, I guarantee you, you will be able to relate with at least one of these, if not all three. So with that as an introduction, look again at verse 57. It says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. (laughs) So here's the scene. Imagine 12 guys and Jesus walking down a road. Just a few minutes ago, James and John had received the rebuking of a lifetime. After trying to call fire down on people in Jerusalem, Jesus said to them, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. And that's not far, friends, from calling them straight up demonic, right? He says, you don't even know what spirit you're of in what you just said. So all of this happened, and I imagine things are pretty quiet among the 12. Pretty quiet among Jesus and his followers as they're walking down this road. And if you've ever been in one of those awkwardly silent settings, sometimes you almost feel obligated just to say something, to break the silence, right? Anyone been there before? You just kind of want to break the ice a little bit. Well, put yourself on the road with Jesus and the 12 disciples. James and John just get rebuked. And now someone's going to pipe up. And here's what he says. I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. How about that for an icebreaker? That's a little bit awkward, if you ask me. Uh, Not only was this an untimely reply in light of the recent rebuke, but guys, this was incredibly arrogant. This was arrogant because he didn't know what that even entailed. And Jesus makes it clear in his response. Look again at verse 58. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And I believe this guy's comment did come from good intentions. He wanted to follow Jesus. He expressed that desire, as untimely as it was in light of the recent rebuke. This man wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus challenges and expresses the difficulty of doing this by his statement in verse 58. And if you look at 59, the fact that Jesus moves on to another disciple suggests that this man had nothing to reply. He had nothing to say in response. Now, just as a point of clarification, Jesus challenging this guy's statement by no means indicates that this desire to follow him wherever he went was a bad desire. In fact, I would say Jesus expects this of any disciple. We ought to be willing to say, I will follow you wherever you go. Why? Well, you've got to ask the question, where did this man even get this concept of following Jesus from? He got it from Jesus. Jesus taught this, right? We just looked at Luke 9, 24 to 26. You must lose your life for his sake. And so this man had been taught by Jesus what it was to follow Jesus, and now he's kind of putting two and two together and expresses this desire, Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. But Jesus wasn't done teaching. He wasn't done revealing what the true cost of this was. So he's going to take this man's faith, and he's going to challenge it to an even higher level. And he wants to engage in the details, friends, of actually doing what this disciple's internal desire was. 
And specifically, here's where we get to the practical, to the application, so tune in. Specifically, Jesus' answer pertains to the idol of comfort as seen through rest and safety. He's hitting on the idol of comfort that's manifested through rest and safety. Jesus knew this man's struggle. He knew all, everyone's hearts, right? He knew each individual struggle. And this man, he knew had an idol of comfort, rest, and safety. And college student, I just want to ask you, how great is your allegiance to your own rest, to your own sleep? This is a real struggle for me, if I'm being honest. When I don't get sleep, I get grouchy. Just ask my wife. Okay. How about you, though? How much do you value coming home after school or sitting on the couch for a bit? How much do you value having a warm place to be at? How strong is your allegiance to your own rest and comfort and safety? Now, again, it's not wrong to have these things, and we can be thankful for them, but how close to your heart do they reside? If someone asked you to leave your rest place, leave your comforts for an indefinite period of time to follow them, would you do it? I don't know about you, but I probably wouldn't. Not if it was just some average Joe. Okay, but how about if Jesus asked you to do it? If Jesus asked you to leave the comforts of your home, to leave a life where you get eight hours of sleep every single night, to leave a life of safety, perhaps, to endure persecution. Now we're starting to probe into the inner parts of our hearts, aren't we? I know in America this is an, a very highly occurring idol. Right? We are in a, a culture of comfort and rest and safety. And yet, Jesus hits it right on the head for this disciple. Look again. In 58, he's using the analogy. Okay? In this analogy, the nest in this verse represents both the rest and the safety that is entailed in having a place to call home. His point here is that even animals have a place of comfort and rest. Jesus is saying here that following him may require leaving the comfortable. Stepping out of your comfort zone. Stepping out of the comforts of a home. Are you willing to follow Jesus to dangerous places? Not intentionally seeking them out, but if it came down to it, would you take a bullet for his sake? The Son of Man had no such comfort, no such rest in his life. He was always on the move, always working, always under persecution and duress. And the Christian friend will likewise partake in his same sufferings. The intensity may vary. We may not endure the same intensity of persecution or discomfort or lack of rest, but we will to some degree because we will be willing to follow him wherever he takes us. And we know that if the world hated him, then they're going to hate us. Now, just as a practical implication here, not all of us are going to be asked to follow Jesus unto death. Some of us may get that privilege. Some of us may get the privilege to give it all up for Jesus. But you know what? Some of us are just going to stay right here and glorify God here in Bozeman. John 21. Um, you guys familiar with that passage? The end of John's gospel. Uh, Jesus tells Peter he's going to die for his sake. He tells Peter, Peter, you're going to have to leave <laughs> comfort and rest and safety because you're going to die for my sake. And do you remember how Peter responds? He says, Lord, what about John. Does John get to die too? And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, Peter, what does it matter to you if I leave him here until I come back the second time? At, but as for you, you follow me. 
And friends, I just want to set aside any comparisons of other people, any comparisons of other Christians, and probe our own hearts. What extent are we willing to follow Jesus to? Specifically pertaining to this idol, the idol of comfort. Our allegiance to Jesus must be greater than our allegiance to our own comfort, our own rest, our own safety. Again, Some of you might do that right here in Bozeman, working an 8-5 to job, glorifying God, stewarding all the resources He's given you. For others, though, you may head to Nicaragua, you may head to Turkey or Tanzania and be a full-time missionary. Wherever your lot, you are called to follow God. John was not killed as a martyr. Peter was. They both glorified God in their lives. but our allegiance to Jesus must be the greatest. It must be our greatest allegiance. And friends, this is the gospel that we must believe and that we must preach to others. A lot of churches have a watered-down gospel that it's, it's just not a gospel. It's a false gospel. It's a name-it-claim-it prosperity gospel. They boast of hundreds of thousands of converts and baptisms, and yet my question for them is, what have they converted people to? Have they converted people to a community that has fun together? Have they converted people to a church or to a system or to, what have they converted them to? Because I'm not convinced a lot of churches are converting people to a life of following Christ above all else. A life where Jesus Christ is our number one priority and our number one allegiance. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus demands, that our allegiance to him is greater than that of our own comfort. Is that challenging? Good, that's just the first one. Second one, here we go. Jesus is going to challenge the next man now with another area for our full allegiances. uh, And the area that he challenges this next man is found in verse 59. He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Now, just a quick note here before I get into this. There's a reason that Jesus is talking with the first man. Okay, he brings up the idol of comfort. The man is speechless. Now he turns to another man and addresses a new idol. And I believe the reason he turns to another man is because he knows this man's idol now. He's moving from this man now to this man, one of his disciples, and he's going to address a new idol. Right, as the Son of God, he had the advantage of being filled with the Spirit at all times. He knew the hearts of all those around him, right? And so he's going to address this man's specific hindrance from full allegiance to Christ. And at first glance, in 59 and 60 here, we might be tempted to say that this idol is that of family. The thing holding us back from wholesale commitment to Christ is our family. But actually here, the idol is money. And let me explain. In addition to this being a great religious duty of the day, the burial of a father also had financial implications. While it was of utmost religious importance for a son to bury his father, a man's inheritance would also be given to him upon his father's death. Now, here's the one caveat. You had to be present to receive it. You had to be present at your father's death and burial to receive the inheritance from your father. Now, in all likelihood, this man's dad, this man's father, was not actually dead yet. I mean, I don't imagine him being on a several-day, possibly several-week journey with Jesus, casually walking down a road while his father's body's decaying back home, waiting to be buried, right? 
His dad is likely still alive. And what this man is saying is, is that he wants to stick around until he dies so that he can get his inheritance. Essentially, this man's saying, well, Jesus, I want to follow you, but in light of what you just said to this other guy about having no home or rest or comfort, I think I better stick around and, and uh, stick around the family farm until dad passes away so I can get my inheritance. Then I'll consider following you later. In fact, guys, look, get this. The phrase, I must bury my father, was actually a common figure of speech that meant, let me wait until I receive my inheritance. It was used that way in the first century. So this man wanted to make sure that he had his wealth obtained, his estate in order, before he fully committed to Christ. And gang, can you and I not relate to this a little bit? Is there not a very potent, practical application coming from this? Jesus isn't saying that having a home or wealth or even receiving an inheritance is sin. It's not. In fact, 1 Timothy says, if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever. But what Jesus is saying is that clinging to wealth or clinging to an inheritance or clinging to anything above Christ is sin. It's the wrong focus. And that's why he says in, a, in somewhat of a sharp way, let the dead bury the dead. He says, let the dead bury the, be- the dead. And here's how the first century Jew would have understood this. And this is what Jesus intended. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. Let me say that again. Let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. In other words, there may be religious ceremonies to be kept. And though there may be an inheritance to be gleaned, you are called to give your time, your attention, and your life to something far more important. Let the rest of the world deal with the mundane matters. You are called to a higher purpose. Let the rest of the world bury the dead. Let the rest of the world take care of the farms and do all these other things. You're called to a higher purpose. And friends, one who strives after wealth with all their mind and strength, and if that's their drive, and they've misplaced their affection to the wrong thing, they're not going to be satisfied. They're not going to be fulfilled. And I just got to help. I can't help but wonder, with this being the money of, or the, the idol of money, I can't help but wonder if this wasn't, in fact, Judas himself. Granted, it, I mean, probably most of the disciples may have had this idol, but this could have been Judas himself. And if you think about Judas for a minute, Judas had a strong desire for power, a strong desire for money. And in the end, he would trade in Jesus for 30 shekels of silver. And you want to know what he did with all this wealth that he gained from betraying the king of the universe? You want to know what he did with it? He brought it back and threw it at the feet of the Pharisees whom he got it from, and he went and hanged himself. Friends, this is the power and the draw and the deception of money. Don't fall for this trick. Don't fall for Satan's lie. Money does not satisfy. I wish I would have pulled some of these quotes up, but it was interesting. Over the Christmas break, I ran into like three different quotes from celebrities talking about how money doesn't satisfy. One of them was Jim Carrey saying he wished that everyone could get rich and famous so that they could see that it doesn't make you happy. One of them was Jennifer Lopez. I don't know how that came up, but Jennifer Lopez, she was kind of the rags to riches type story, and she was talking about how if you're not happy when you're poor, you're not going to be happy when you're rich. Even pagans who don't know Christ as their Lord and Savior recognize that riches and happiness is not the means to fulfillment in life. The classic Tom Brady story, right? After his third Super Bowl win and MVP and he's GQ's hottest man of the year or whatever. And he says on 60 Minutes, live television, 
millions of people watching, he says, there's got to be something more than this. There's got to be something more than this. And yet how many people want to be Tom Brady? Right? Friends, don't write yourself off here. This can happen to the best of us. It's all too easy to get caught up with money and careers and savings and to forget about what God has actually called us to do. My fear is that the pursuit of money is going to sidetrack you. At at minimum, it's going to make you ineffective for the kingdom of God. But perhaps even worse, it will lull you into an idleness and draw you altogether away from God as an unbeliever. In fact, let me ask you a question for you to think about here for a moment. Rather than waiting around for an inheritance... Rather than striving after wealth and riches, what has God called us to do? And I want to ask the question textually from this passage, what has God called us to do? If he's called us to put off, he's called this man, and by implication us, to put off the pursuit of riches and wealth and in this man's life waiting for his inheritance, what has he called us to put on? What do we get to pursue with all of our passion and vigor? Well, look again at verse 60. He said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. In other words, friends, there is nowhere that we should not have a kingdom mindset. And that's what I want us to glean from this, guys, is that we need to have a kingdom mindset. Our minds ought to be thinking about the kingdom of God often. Let me just ask you, how often do you look at people who are in your lives, who are unbelievers, and think of their souls? And think of the fact that, hey, this person's going one of two places, heaven or hell. And I'm called as an ambassador of Christ to represent Christ with the good news. We need to understand something here, friends. This is not describing a phenomenal Christian. This is not describing a pastor. This is describing the nature of following Jesus. It's being like him and doing what he did which means living for and proclaiming the kingdom of God to others. The very essence of Christianity doesn't suggest, but it requires that we are going on the offense with the gospel message, that we are living with a kingdom mindset, proclaiming the gospel to all. And here's the exciting thing, guys. The misrepresentation of Christianity. I hope you don't view it this way. The misrepresentation of Christianity is this. No, 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 no. Don't do this. You can't do this. You live in a confined box, right? And yet that is far from what Jesus is defining following him as. Instead, he doesn't just say, don't do this, don't do this. He says, do this with passion. Follow me with your life. Come experience the fullness of joy. And guys, there is nothing more exciting than living for Christ. There's nothing more exciting than living with this sort of kingdom mindset. Listen, he has called us to be his ambassadors, his representatives, his spokespersons. He's called us to take a message to the world that, guys, it can alter a person's destiny. I know I'm speaking on human terms here. It's God who saves, but you can change a person's destiny if they repent and believe at the good news which you share with them. Have you ever seen this happen? We get the privilege of knowing the king personally and not only knowing him, but we're adopted as sons and daughters. And then we get to go out on his behalf and beg people to come and dine with our king. Right as the parable of the marriage feast speaks of, we go out and we beg people to come in and they beat us. And we go back out and we beg them, come and dine 
Come and dine with the king. It's free. The table, the dinner table's set. All you got to do is arrive in the king's clothes. Wear his righteousness and you're in, free. Forget about drugs. Forget about sex. Forget about not being cool. Do you see how much greater this is? What he has called us to. C.S. Lewis, a lot of you know him, author of Chronicles of Narnia and many more wonderful works, said this. He said, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Guys, the glory of the king is seen in a glimmer now. But then, when we're all reconciled to God, believers in Christ are reconciled, we will see him as he is. We will see his glory fully displayed. I hope he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Friends, you put this glory, you put the glory of God and you weigh it to the desires of this world, to the temporary fading riches of filthy lucre, of money. We're talking about money. You weigh money with the glory of God and what we're called to do. No comparison. Our allegiance to Christ must be greater than our allegiance to filthy money. And there's one final obstacle to go in this passage, one final idol this evening. And while the first two were challenging, maybe even excruciating, this third one is impossible apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. And I just want to say this to begin. If you're not born again, if you're not a born again believer tonight, this is not going to make a lot of sense to you. It's not going to seem right. It may not even seem ethical. Why? Because you don't know the king. If you don't know the king, it's not going to make sense what I'm about to say. If you know the king, it's going to be hard, but it's at least going to make sense, and the Spirit's going to confirm that this is truth in your heart. So what obstacle am I talking about? I'm talking about the obstacle of family. I'm talking about the idol, the obstacle, the stumbling block of family. Luke chapter 9, verse 61. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And let's just put it out there. Okay, there is no greater obstacle to full allegiance to Jesus Christ than one's allegiance to their family and family members. Guys, you see this time and time again. Whether it's allegiance to a family tradition or a family name or a family religion or to a parent or a grandparent or a brother or sister, this is the one that trips a lot of people up. Here's some excuses. Well, I can't fully commit my life to Christ because it will put tension in my family. Well, I can't begin coming to church and Bible study because my family's always been a part of this other religion, this other church. I can't come to church because that's when my family spends family time together. Or I can't come to Bible study because we have a family game night. Uh, sorry, not sorry. Your allegiance to Christ should be and ought to be greater than your allegiance to your family. And just as a side note, guys, family can, can really pose as a good reason to skip something like Bible study or cross life or church. But in fact, I just want you to think about this, especially for you college students. If your family comes into town, 
What a witnessing opportunity if you were to say to them, you know, Mom, Dad, I'm really excited to spend time with you guys this weekend, but just I want to let you know ahead of time, Thursday night I'm going to be at Cross Life, Sunday morning I, I need to be with believers and I need to go worship God. I'd love for you to come with me. I don't know where your parents are, but if they're unbelievers, that's a witness to them. But a lot of, call, I mean, a lot of us think, okay, my family's in town, I'm not going to go to church, I'm going to spend the weekend with them. Right? Our allegiance to God should be greater than our allegiance to our family. And we have opportunities to show them that all the time. When you go home for Christmas break or spring break or a weekend, do you skip out on your devos because you want to go have breakfast with them? It's not bad to have breakfast with them. But what an opportunity to show your greater allegiance, to show your allegiance to the king. Do you know that there are people who have come to Christ through this church who now cannot go home because their family will kill them? They'll kill them. I don't know each of your families, but if you're from the States, your family probably will not kill you for becoming a Christian and going to church on Sunday. And yet, how quick are we to show allegiance to and prioritize our family above God? I'm sorry, friends, but if your regular excuse for not worshiping God with the people of God on a Sunday, and if your regular excuse for not spending time in the Word or making it to a small group fellowship is that you want to spend time with your family, your priorities are backwards. They just are. Your allegiance to family is manifesting itself as greater than your allegiance to God. A couple of cross-references here that are, are really interesting. Jesus ministered to a large group of people and he's ministering to a group of people, and someone comes and tells him, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brother are right outside the door. They want to see you. And they're trying to get in, and they can't get to him because the crowd's so big. But they're within earshot. His mom and his brother are right in the room. And you want to know what Jesus says? He says, behold, my mothers and my brothers. Those who hear the word of God and do it, these are my mothers and brothers. Can you imagine how they might have felt Hopefully they had the humility to recognize, yeah, he's right. There's a unique fellowship within those people. But Jesus' priority was even different than family. Luke 14, 26, Jesus said this, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Again, context, right? The word hate in this uh, culture did not mean how we think of hate, but it meant to have a lower priority than something else. Pastor Brian gave a wonderful example on Sunday of it. A man trying to decide between two pairs of shoes. He couldn't decide. He really liked them both. And in the end, he said, so I had to decide and I chose to love the one and hate the other. He didn't all of a sudden actually hate the other pair of shoes. He just prioritized it under the other. And so Jesus says here, you have to hate or have a lower priority for your father, your mother, your wife, your children, your brothers, your sisters. That pretty much covers all the primary family members. Everyone must be, including yourself, must be a lower priority than Jesus. Jesus knew this man's heart in Luke chapter 9. He knew his heart and he knew that this man's allegiance to his family was strong. In fact, this is conjecture here, but I believe so strong that perhaps had this man gone home to spend some final time with his family before going out on a journey with Jesus, he may have very well been convinced not to follow Jesus at all. You ever been lulled to sleep by your family? 
You ever gone home for break and had great intentions of running hard after the Lord and you get lulled to sleep and next thing you know you're not doing devos, you're not going to church and you're falling into sin? Now, his response to the man's request is what's most interesting in verse 62. What's Jesus talking about in verse 62 when he says, putting the hand to the plow? Any of you ever farmed in here? I know we've got a couple farmers. Most of you have probably mowed a lawn before, correct? That's a maybe more contemporary analogy that we can relate to. So you're mowing your lawn, and I want to ask you, if you're mowing a lawn, let's say you're on a riding lawnmower, and you look straight down in front of you, how straight is your line going to be? It's not going to be very straight. How about if you look to the left and you're trying to drive, or to the right and you're trying to drive? How about if you turn around and you look backwards while you're trying to drive a straight line and stay right on the straight line? Is, it going to work? is, is that going to be a straight line? No, of course not, right? You can take this analogy a long ways. You need to set your, your gaze on the horizon and look forward, uh, you know. But the point here is this. Jesus says no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And friends, here's the application. You must look forward. You must look forward unto the kingdom of God. There isn't time after coming to Christ to look back on the sinful days and remember what it was like. There isn't time to look back and long for your past sin. You've been called to something greater. You have life in Christ. You have a purpose, a direction, a calling. I don't care if you're going to be a construction worker or a teacher or a nurse or a doctor or a lawyer. You have an identity in Christ and a calling with your life. And that's what we're to look to. We're to look ahead, not backwards. Not backwards. And that includes our past relationships. Even with the family here. That includes relationships even with family. It's like a butterfly who so elegantly gets to flutter the skies, all of a sudden looking back to the days of being confined to a caterpillar's body on a tree branch somewhere. You must not look back. It must be forward. Now, specifically, what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about joining Jesus as a laborer for the kingdom of God. And friends, don't be deceived. Again, this work is not only for pastors. It's not only, only for deacons. It's not only for the super spiritually mature. This is the expectation and the norm for any professing Christian. Just look at the statement he's responding to in verse 61. The man says in 61, I will follow you. So we're still talking about just normal, average, plain old following Jesus here. We're not talking about being, trying to achieve some higher status of spirituality. We're talking about being a Christian. And Jesus is shattering his own disciples' low expectations of what this involved. This now was to be the new norm for anyone who wanted to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus means to commit your greatest allegiance to him. You can't just follow him half-heartedly. You can't just use him as hellfire insurance, fire insurance, and then your life is no different. What it means to be a Christian or a mini-Christ, a christ in it means to follow Christ. It means to be fully devoted to him. To have your greatest allegiance given to him. It involves active service to the Lord. And so he hits on this third idol, the idol of family. Now in closing, I've talked about the difficulty of following Jesus. The high cost of following Jesus. And again, it's not easy to take in. But I just want to encourage you. It's true. Okay, I'm not saying this. Don't shoot the messenger type of a thing. This is what God has said. 
This is what Jesus has said. This is true. And there's nothing more important in your life than settling this issue right now. You can, set, you can set aside school. You can set aside whatever's going on in your life. Where you're at with the Lord is the most important thing that you need to settle. And so we've looked at the high cost, but I want to I close with six reasons why I'm begging you to follow Jesus. Six positive reasons why you ought to follow Jesus. We've looked at the high cost and we've looked at these three idols, but here's six reasons in closing why we all ought to follow Jesus. Number one, it is the only thing in life that brings lasting joy. You can search and you can search and you can search and you will not find contentment and deep lasting joy apart from Christ. And yet the sad reality is is that many will spend their entire lives chasing a promotion, chasing the spotlight or money or glory or marriage, you name it friends, and they get it and they still don't have joy. Look at Hollywood right now. It's a mess. I mean, people overdosing on drugs and killing themselves and looking for identity crisis, sex changes. It's a mess. Okay? Coming to Christ and following Him is the only thing that will bring you lasting joy. Number two, you were made to worship God. In your very DNA is the intrinsic wiring to worship. We're all worshiping something, whether it's a career or a sport or our bodies or a relationship or some person. We are all worshiping something. But the only thing that we're made to worship is God. And the way that God has designed it is that we would worship him through worshiping God in flesh, Jesus Christ, through placing our faith in him. Number three, it's the only way to go to heaven. And listen, we don't have have time to prove all these. We could do an entire sermon on each one of these points. So you're going to have to just take this at, at face value. But listen, genuine, real faith in Christ is the only way to go to heaven. Faith in Christ is the only way to go to heaven and be with God for eternity. No second chances. No chance to burn off sins. It's this life that counts for eternity. And what you do with it determines where you go. So, believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior and know for certain, without a shadow of a doubt, with 100% confidence, as soon as I die, I'm going to heaven. Number four, without it assures that you're going to hell. Every human who has ever lived, guys, is hell-bound. Every single one. From Adam all the way down to us. We all have earned ourselves the grand privilege of going straight to hell. And would you like to know why? It's because every single one of us has sinned. And maybe that doesn't make sense to you if you don't understand the holiness of God. But when you set the holiness of God in contrast with sin, they are incompatible. So unless your sins are covered and paid for with the righteousness of Christ... You are hell-bound. So repent and believe. Follow Jesus. Number five, you don't know when your time on earth is up. And guys, this is just reality, right? People die every single day. And you know what? Not just old people. Don't be presumptuous that you're going to live forever. You could have a heart attack in your sleep tonight. It happens to young people. You could get in a car wreck on the way home tonight. There's a, a lot of you coulds, right? You don't know when you're going to die. Your time on earth is limited. So turn to Christ now. Today is the day of salvation. Today, not tomorrow. And further, I just get so sad when people say, oh, I'm going to get right with God later in life. I'm going to live it up now and I'll worry about that later in life. Friends, what makes you think you're going to have any more desire for God then than you do right now? In fact, just the opposite. You are establishing patterns of sin and patterns of anti-God behavior that are going to be cemented in by the time you're 30. 
They're going to be cemented in by the time you're 40 or 50 or 60. You're not just going to flip a switch and all of a sudden turn. Take this seriously now. Now is the time to turn to Jesus. And number six, Jesus deserves our allegiance. Jesus left it all, right? He was in heaven in pre-incarnate form with the triune God. He left the glory of heaven to enter a human body, dwell among men, be despised, be rejected, and then to be hung on a cross where not only was he hung on a cross by the Romans and the Jews, but where, where he bore the wrath of God. He bore the anger towards sin of God the Father. Every last drop. The cup of God's wrath was poured out in total on Jesus Christ. Friends, He deserves your allegiance. He has made you. He has died on the cross for sins, for all those who would trust in Him. And I'm begging you to turn to Him tonight if you don't know Him. And for believers, man, there's been some challenging things tonight. I'm examining my own heart. I trust that you're doing the same. Father, we are so thankful for your word that it is cutting, Lord. It pierces to the point of division within us, God. Lord, would you sanctify this group? Set this group apart, Lord, for your own purposes. Cause us to walk in your statutes, God. We want to please you. But Lord, most of all, we want to love and know and worship Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord, thank you that you sent him to die for us or that he's ransomed us. God, I just pray for those who haven't yet made this step of faith and repentance, God, that you would work in their hearts tonight to see, yes, this is a high cost. And yes, Jesus, you do demand it all. But God, it is so worth it. It is so worth it for six reasons and many, many more. Lord, hundreds of reasons why this is worth it. Thank you, Lord, for saving faith for many in this room. I pray, God, that you would stir each heart to respond individually to how you would desire from this sermon, Lord, from your word, really, from Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62, God. Make us more like Jesus. Root out idols, God. Conform us to his life for your glory, God, as the end result, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.